And uh, this morning we're continuing that and we're in Psalm 111. So while you're turning there, I'll just begin reading. This was written on October 3rd, 1863. The year that is drawing toward its close has been filled with the blessings of fruitful fields and healthful skies. To these bounties which are so constantly enjoyed that we are prone to forget the source from which they come, others have been added which are so extraordinary in nature that cannot fail to penetrate and even soften the heart which is habitually insensible to the ever watchful providence of Almighty God. In the midst of a civil war of unequaled magnitude and severity which has sometimes seemed to foreign states to invite and provoke their aggressions, peace has been preserved with all nations Order has been maintained, the laws have been respected and obeyed, and the harmony has prevailed everywhere except in the theater of military conflict, while that theater has been greatly contracted by the advancing armies and navies of the Union. Needful diversions of wealth and of strength from the fields of peaceful industry to the national defense have not arrested the plow, the shuttle, or the ship. The axe has enlarged the borders of our settlements and the mines, as well of iron and coal as of precious metals, have yielded even more abundantly than the heretofore. Population is steadily increased, notwithstanding the waste that has been made in the camp, the siege and the battlefield in the country, rejoicing the consciousness of augmented strength and vigor is permitted to expect continuance of years with large increase of freedom. No human counsel hath devised, nor hath any moral hand worked out these great things. They are the gracious gifts of the Most High God, who, while dealing with us in anger for our sins, hath nevertheless remembered mercy. It has seemed to me fit and proper that they should be solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledged as with one heart and with one voice by the whole American people. I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States and also those who are at the sea and those who are sojourning in foreign fields to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November next as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens. And I recommend to them that while offering up ascriptions justly due to him for such singular deliverances and blessings, they do also with humble penance for our national perverseness and disobedience, commend to his tender care all those who have become widows, orphans, mourners, or sufferers in the lamentable civil strife in which we unavoidably engage and fervently implore their position of the almighty hand to heal the wounds of the nation and to restore it as soon as may be consistent with the divine purposes to full enjoyment of peace, harmony, tranquility, and union. In testimony whereof I have hereunto set my hand and caused the seal of the United States to be affixed, done at the city of Washington this third day of October in the year of our Lord, 1863, and of the independence of the United States, the 88th. By President Abraham Lincoln. October 3rd, 1863, Thanksgiving Day became a federal holiday. Later moved to the fourth Thursday of November. Lincoln's address sounds so religious, doesn't it? Humble before God. Recognizing him as the giver of all good gifts. Exalting God's greatness to us all. But also recognizing God's right to judge us for our wickedness. Shocking things, really, I think, for an elective official to say. But also is the fact that, that thankfulness seems 
has seeped in and we see it in a, as a secular thing to do, the urge from this world to want to thank someone for good things happening. How, how frequent are the words do we hear, thank God, and then fill in the blank? And I wonder how many really mean it. What are you thankful for? What are you thankful to God for? How has, how has your week gone? Have you spent time this week praising God? Have you spent a deliberate time rehearsing the goodness of God? This morning, we're gonna look at a psalm that should fuel our praise for God as we search for wisdom in this world. If you have Bibles, I invite you to turn, if you haven't already, to Psalm 111. We're using a Bible that's provided there in the seats. It's on page 477. I encourage you to use that. Hebrew poetry, unlike our, our poetry, is not based on rhyming, but you'll find various devices in Hebrew poetry that indicate that there's an elevated sort of aesthetic style. One thing that you find in Hebrew poetry is parallelism, where, where the same thing is said right next to another in a different word in, in order to sharpen our understanding of what's just been said. Another pattern that you'll find in Hebrew poetry is the use of acrostics. And this psalm is, is one of those. It's an acrostic based on the Hebrew alphabet. Interesting, the next psalm is as well, Psalm 112. Clearly, they go together as twins. They both focus on the fear of the Lord and they, and they emphasize and in Psalm 111, the righteousness of God, and Psalm 12, the righteousness of those who love God. And so this psalm, beginning after the opening, praise the Lord, follows the letters of the Hebrew alphabet and, and 22 different statements that, that it makes about God. So we're gonna look at this, Lord willing, here in the 10 verses, Psalm 111, and then follow with me as I read. Psalm 111, praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. So here's the point of my message. I want you to write this down, okay? If you have notes, write this down. If you write anything this morning, write this down. Wisdom begins with the worship and wonder of God. Wisdom begins with the worship and wonder of God. If you're searching for wisdom, it begins with worship, which leads to wonder. And if we don't have worship and wonder, we won't experience wisdom. And this psalm is all about us remembering who God is and what God has done and what God will do. So if you came in, that's the outline. Um, worship, wonder, wisdom. Wisdom begins with the worship and wonder of God. And so as we begin, would you join me as I pray and we'll get started. Lord, this is your word and we recognize that we need it. We thank you that your words are true. And your words are profitable. Your words glorify yourself and they do good to our souls. 
So even as our souls are ministered to by your word as proclaimed and read this morning, we ask you glorify yourself in your hearing in our embracing and understanding your word and our practice of this word by the power of your Holy Spirit and the help of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we ask that you would help us in Jesus' name, amen. First thing I want you to see is worship, verses one through three. This psalm describes God, our great God. Of all the things this world needs to hear, the most needful thing is for them to hear about our great God. We, we need to consider God more. We, need, we, we will never exhaust all of our thoughts about God. We will never exhaust all of our praise that God deserves. We will never exhaust the devotion that God warrants. God is worthy of our worship. The psalmist says, praise the Lord. What a way to start. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Praise the Lord. It's a determined resolve to praise God. He has made his mind up. His determination includes then giving thanks. He says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. He'll give thanks with, his, with all that he has. It means to be sincere. And our worship to God must include a focused heart that is giving thanks to God. A worship is a determination not to forget God and to do it then with our whole heart. And, and do you notice where this praise is happening in the psalm? He says, in the company of the upright in the congregation. The scriptures time and again talk about the need for personal worship. Many verses instruct us to do this, but public worship is held in high esteem in the scriptures. And the psalmist is engaged in corporate worship. This is an unashamed corporate worship, praising God, giving thanks to God for all he's done in our lives. It's good to praise God in public. AF Thoughtluck in his Psalms commentary says, the concealment of praise is tantamount to depriving the Lord of half his glory. That's why we worship publicly every Sunday morning to give God all that he is due. Worship is God-ordained and it's for his glory. There will be public worship in heaven. Spoiler alert. Do you realize it this morning? You and I will worship him if we're Christians publicly and you'll love it. Why? Because we'll finally have no other excuses that pull us away from worship. No other distractions. We will not have this sin-cursed world that brings distractions to the focus of our worship. And in the meantime, while we wait, we need to make it a priority to come and gather with the congregation to worship. Going to church each week is a big deal. You know, I was thinking, I was reviewing my sermon, and I felt just compelled to text my mom and my in-laws this morning as I was preparing, thanking them that worship on Sunday mornings was a big deal in our home. It was never a question. Worship, going to church each week is a big deal because it tells your family and your friends and your coworkers and your neighbors that you have a priority that's greater than the outdoors, that's greater than sports or brunch or sleep. And it tells God that your priorities are his. It's important that we come to church. But not only that, worship also demands an active participation. You see that with our whole heart. We don't come and gather with the saints each week to be entertained. That's not the point of our worship services. 
We're to be active in our worship services. This is one of the reasons why I deliberately decided at the very beginning of my ministry to publish the sermon schedule ahead of time. I don't do, trust me, it would be easier for me not to do this for my schedule. I do it on purpose so that you would have no excuse to not know what the passage of scripture will be preached on each week. Do you take that schedule and have it? Do you read through what's gonna be preached on? That's part of active participation in the worship service. You would know then what we're gonna preach on. We want to give you plenty of time to read the passage, to study it, to meditate on it, and to email me during the week. Jeff, I've been in the passage. Have you considered this? I say this, I get one email every three months from you. Friends, help me out. I'm in the word. You dive into the word. Study it. Read it. Meditate on it. Send me a text message. Call me up. Jeff, have you looked at this part? It's an amazing section here in Psalm 11. Don't come in just dragging on Sunday, just wondering what's going to be preached. We give it to you. We, we tell you ahead of time. Actively participate in the worship. It also means that you take the notes, the outline there, and you, you take notes, being active in it. Means during the sermon, you have your Bible open. You, you follow the text, making notes for your study. And do you recognize that you probably don't, that one of, the, one of the things that I dearly miss as a preaching pastor is listening to sermons. I miss that. So I, I listen to one or two sermons each week, preferably not my own. I sit under the teaching of God's word. I travel to conferences, not because I enjoy airplane rides. I don't. They're not made for tall men. I do that because I can sit for three days and hear 12 sermons because I enjoy the active participation of sitting under God's word preached to be fed. I love taking notes. I love looking back over the notes of sermons past. I occasionally just pull out journals. I have stacks of them that I see what I've learned and the dates when I learned it. So friends, have that active participation. Worship demands an active participation with our whole heart. Come prepared to worship each week. Next Sunday, Lord willing, we will look at the demand for missions from Revelation chapter 5. So spend this week reading that chapter along with the other reading that you have in the scriptures and come prepared to actively participate in the preaching of God's word as we dive into what God has for us. He says in verse two here, great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. Great are his works. They are immense and substantial. The Hebrew word for works is a word that usually refers to the stars and heavens and earth and the sky, the things that he's created. It's said that at the Cavendish Laboratory at Cambridge, the science building has over the door this inscription of verse Psalm 111.2. Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. These scientists at Cambridge walk in through the door with this inscription over the top. It's the days past, it's charter Cambridge University gave its scientists this verse as the motivation for their work. Imagine that. Today, if you're a Christian, you're a scientist, you're, you're in research, what are you doing? You're, you're not just figuring out mechanics, you're studying most clearly, you're pondering the works of God. 
It means you were intellectually, intensely thinking about them. You were considering the work of an artist. You're studying the work of God. All science is studying the work of God, whether people know it or not. All science is studying the work of God. And he says there in verse three, full of splendor and majesty is his work and his righteousness endures forever. And when we come to worship, we come into the heavenly sanctuary of our God. What God creates, he sustains and upholds and directs and governs. And all these incredible things are glorious, revealing God's kingly splendor, majestic, manifesting his grandeur and his righteousness, displaying his holiness. Friends, God is worthy of our worship. So let me ask you, are you worshiping God? Are your praises to God done wholeheartedly, sincerely? Are you actively engaged in worship when you gather together with the saints? Are you focused on God this morning? It isn't that we don't have thoughts or troubles or issues in our lives, but that we bring those before him. Do you come prepared to worship with your whole heart on Sunday morning? Do you realize that that Sunday morning worship is a Saturday night decision? That's when you decide. I'm going to go to worship. Do you want your kids to learn that Sunday morning worship is important? Then you need to make it important. Words teach, example sways. What are you teaching through your example? Is worship important? How often do you give thanks to God? You know, if I were to ask you for the remaining 35 minutes that we're to have in this place to write out all the things you're thankful for God, would you stall out in five minutes? Could you sit here? Would that be an easy task or a hard task? You know, I met with the elders this week for our elder meeting. We, we do, before every sermon, we, we read through the, the passage that we preached. And so we read through Psalm 111, and then we paused for a while, and we went around the room, just asked. They asked the elders, talk, talk to me. What are some good things that God's done? And we spent 20 minutes, elders, just sharing what God has done, rehearsing the goodness of God. I just asked for two things, and it took 20, 25 minutes. When was the last time that you sat down with your family, your friends, and thanked God for all that he's done? Just rehearsing the goodness of God, rehearsing what you've read in God's word or, or seeing what he's done in your life. When was the last time you've done that? You know, thanksgiving fuels worship. Recognizing who God is, remembering who he is, thanking him, sharing that with others. And if we're to be wise in this world, it begins with the worship of God, which happens every week here as we gather together as a congregation, as Christians here at Edgewood. So don't forsake this time. Gather together. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart and the company of the upright and the congregation Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. So that's worship. Second is wonder. Worship leads to wonder in this psalm. And when the psalmist begins to praise God for all that he's done, his heart races to wonder of the God that he serves. I, I believe this psalm wanted to draw our attention back to consider God's work on behalf of his people, people in Exodus. 
And the reference to God's grace and mercy in verse four the, reminds us of the revelation of God's name in ver, Exodus 34. His redemption in verse nine takes us to the Exodus. His precepts in verse seven talk, talk and take us to Mount Sinai. The provision of food that he mentions in verse five takes us to the wandering. The inheritance that he mentions in verse six takes us to the promised land. I think it's all pointing back this way. So the question, again, for you this morning is, do you study this? Do you study the wonders of God? Do you remember the wonders of God? Do you know them? He's caused them to be remembered. He has, he's wanting us to rehearse, again, what he's done. He has written them in a book so that we can study them and delight in them. Do you remember the story of God's faithfulness to his people? He says in verse 4, he has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. Do you remember how God remembered his promise to Abraham when Pharaoh had forgotten about the saving deeds of Joseph? Do you remember when God turned the waters of the Nile into blood? Do you remember when the Lord of hosts waged war against the puny gods of the Egyptians with bugs and boils and fiery hail? Do you remember when the Lord promised to rescue his people if they would sacrifice a lamb and place the blood over the doors? Do you remember that even Pharaoh was under the control of God and his heart was subject to the power of God? Do you remember when God led his people toward a vast sea with no visible sign of clear passage, and yet then God opened up the waters and destroyed Pharaoh's army behind them? Do you remember when he redeemed his people from the hands of tyranny? Do you remember that when they were safe in the wilderness, the people were hungry and God fed them from bread that came from heaven? Do you remember when they were dying of thirst, God squeezed water from a rock? Do you remember that when he brought the thunder and lightning to the top of Mount Sinai, when he spoke and it sounded like loud thunderclaps and smoke was seen, how he called Moses up so that he could give him the precepts and the commands to be etched in the stone by the finger of God? Do you remember? Do you remember that he revealed his name as Lord, the sovereign in grace and mercy, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, the forgiver of sins and the punisher of guilt? Do you remember when he promised them a land and the people and rebelled against the fear of giants and they turned to the wilderness and to the garden of death, a graveyard for an entire generation? Do you remember that God promised Abraham the promise of blessing and offspring and a land for his people? Do you remember battle after battle where the Lord of hosts was on their side? That he leveled an entire city with a marching band? Do you remember that he Cleanse the land of Canaan so that people would have a holy inheritance among the nations. Friends, do you remember? Shocking that I and that we so quickly forget as humans the awesome and incredible wonders of our God. His wonders are so striking that they should continue to amaze and confound us. And I'm shocked that we don't spend more time considering all that God has done, not only in his word, but in our lives. Do you regularly rehearse together as family and friends all the goodness of God? Do you regularly remind yourself how awesome this God that we serve is?
I'm sure I've shared this before, but when I was in college, I visited some friends, a classmate. Her parents were missionaries in Puerto Rico. And when we sat down for the first meal together, I couldn't help but notice at the dining room table to the left of that where I sat was this hodgepodge of a shelf with little cubbies, this large shelf. And it was odd, to say the least. It had all sorts of items in it. It had a matchbox car that I remember. It had a small plastic flower. And then it had something that caught my eye. It was just a snipping, a clipping of hair and like a hair tie. I wasn't sure if I should be surprised or scared. And, and the conversation at the table begins before we ate, and the husband noticed me glancing the shelf, and began, I began to wonder if I should wear a hat to bed. Not really sure what's going to happen. And he motions to the shelf, and he, began to, he says to me very simply, pick a cubby. Uh, I don't really want any of those things. <laughs> he says, pick a cubby. I'm going to share a story. And so I naturally chose, what would you choose? The hair, right? Why do you have hair in that? And he proceeded to share a story of a furlough in the U.S. They were, for years, they served in a team in South Africa. So their kids grew up there, and they have four boys and this one girl that I went to school with, and she was just four or five at the time. And they had just finished reporting at this church in a Sunday evening service, and they're outside during the summertime chatting outside. When all of a sudden, in the midst of the discussion together with church families, they hear screeching and a loud honk, a horn, and their hearts just race and turn to see a flash of blonde hair as one of the brothers scoops up their daughter, just yanking them out of the way of an oncoming truck. My friend that was sitting there, and to hear him share that all they saw was just the lock of hair being pulled aside, and, and the parents immediately thought, this is the mercy of God. So, you know what they did? They cut the hair and stuck it on the cubby so that they could tell others how great their God is. And it was full. This cubby was... 20, 30 different things. And each one, as we were there for that time, was a story, was something that they picked out of how God had been faithful to them. Imagine growing up in this home as the, the constant rehearsal of how good God is and the witness it was to the people that sat around that table. Do you have those remembrances in your life? You should ask Pastor Ryan about a hubcap. Is it hung up anywhere, Ryan? Where's it at? In his garage. You go ask Pastor Ryan about a hubcap after the service. Perhaps your life hasn't, though, been a series of rescues. Perhaps it's been a list of hardships. And I mentioned Last week, I was reading on Stonewall Jackson and uh, received my book in the mail, and sure enough, it's Jason Rasmus on the cover. <laughs> Another story, when his wife, Ellie, whom Stonewall just loved and adored and, and was so thankful of God for providing a wife, when 
Ellie had, was pregnant and then gave birth to a stillborn son. The story says that an hour later, a hemorrhage started and it was fatal for her. And so when it seemed, the author says in a matter of moments, Stonewall's whole world seemed to cave in around him. And the next day he wrote his sister, Laura. He told her he thought he could submit to anything if God strengthened him for it, but he made no attempt to cover his sad despair. But then in the middle of this note, the most amazing one-liner sticks out. He says, oh, my sister, would that you could have him for your God. Though all nature to me is eclipsed, yet I have joy in knowing that God withholds no good things from them that love and keep his commandments. And he will overrule this sad, sad bereavement for good. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine anyone weaker than Jackson in those moments, dashed and devastated by the Lord's taking away, a man beaten and crushed under the weight of losing people so close. And here he is saying, oh, that you could have him for your God. Do you see the wonder in salvation? Part of preaching the gospel to yourself on a daily basis is rehearsing who you are before a holy God. Reminding yourself of who you are. Stonewall Jackson knew this and preached it to others as well. In the depths of his own tragedy, he preached the gospel to himself long before this tragedy came and then it settled into his life so that when tragedy did come, it was natural for him to rehearse it yet again. The wonder of God's goodness overwhelms grief. It doesn't remove it. It overwhelms it. Is this true for your life? How consistent are we rehearsing the goodness of God? Do we remember how good God is, even in the hard times? If we don't worship, and if we don't consider the wonders of the Lord, we will not experience the wisdom of God. That leads to the third point, wisdom. Worship and wonder will naturally lead to wisdom. How, he says here in verse seven, the works of his hands are faithful and just. His, his works are faithful and just towards his people, just like his commitment to forgive us for our daily sins, as 1 John 1, 9 says, to, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And God's work is guaranteed by his name. He says, all his precepts are trustworthy. Verse eight, they are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. His precepts is another word for instructions, his commandments for us, and they are trustworthy. They are infallible, they're dependable, and they are surely for our good and for his glory. Charles Spurgeon has said, all that he has appointed or decreed shall surely stand, and his precepts which he has proclaimed shall be found worthy of our obedience, for surely they have founded in justice and are meant for our lasting good. He is no fickle despot, commanding one thing one day and another another, but his commands remain absolutely unaltered, their necessity equally unquestionable, their excellence permanently proven, and the reward eternally secure. Amen? God always acts with incredible principles of truth and integrity. So there's never a reason not to obey what he's commanded. 
His precepts are established forever and ever. There, there will never be an end. God does what he does because of who he is. God doesn't make any mistakes. All of God's words can be trusted and followed. This is why we devote such a large portion of our time of worship each week. We, we devote 45 minutes each week to preaching of God's word because it's the foundation of our Christian obedience as believers. It's of that important. And do you believe that God's word is enough for your life, Christian? Do you believe it's sufficient for all of life and godliness? How much time do you give to reading it and studying it each week? If you don't believe that the word is sufficient, that it makes complete sense, why you wouldn't read it? Friends, you will never be disappointed with the time that you spend reading the Bible. You will not get to the end of your life and regret the time that you spent in the word. You're not going to say, oh man, I wish I had read the Bible less and watched Netflix more. It's not going to happen. It's not true for the Christian. And so we need to find joy in reading and studying the Bible this week, friends. Verse 9, he says, he sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. God's greatest work for Israel was his redemption by sending a rescuer to save them from the hands of Pharaoh. He delivered his people from bondage. Redemption is a term borrowed from the ancient world of business, just as propitiation is borrowed from the language of, uh, of, re- uh, of religion and justification from the ancient world of law. Redemption refers to buying something in the marketplace and also to buying it out of the marketplace so it will not have to be sold there again. This means little if we think of it in regard of mere objects, but it means a great deal when we think of it in regard to people, especially slaves. To redeem a slave was to buy the slave out of the slave market so that he or she might be set free. Friends, this is what Jesus did for us. Paul touches on this in Romans 8 when he says, For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. He he means that he, he was a slave to sin and death once, but Jesus has freed him from slavery as he is all of those who have been saved by him. This is what we remember each month when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We've been purchased from the slave market of sin. Bought back. We were once bound in our sin. And we're now set free in Jesus Christ. He he sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name, he says. And then in verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have good understanding. His praises endure forever. If you were to spend this afternoon or this evening searching for that beginning phrase, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, you see it littered throughout scriptures, especially in the book of Proverbs. And there is, a, such, a th- there is such a thing as true religion, and it requires heavenly wisdom. It consists of loving and fearing and obeying God. Spurgeon has said, practical religion is the test of wisdom. Men may know and be very orthodox. They may talk and be very eloquent. They may speculate and be very profound, but the very best proof of their intelligence must be found in their actually doing the will of the Lord. And what Spurgeon is saying is that you you may know of the Lord, but you you have to know him personally. You have to connect who he is to every part of your life. 
to fear the Lord, to, to know the Lord, to live for the Lord. And, and wisdom is practical living, not just knowledge for living. It's practical living. It's living the word of God. God has to have total influence in how you actually live. You have to know him and worship him and wonder at what he's done and live obedient to his word if you're going to have wisdom in this life. There is no godly wisdom in men till they fear God, till they revere him. To obey God's word is to fear him, to show reverence for him in your life. And we should obey the Bible, whether it makes us happy or not. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But many, I recognize, and you know, do not fear God. Instead, they fear man. They fear what man thinks. You remember when we were learning in 1 Samuel chapter 15, when King Saul was fearful of what man thought. If you remember, he was commanded by God to go and destroy the Amalekites, but instead he spares the king, King Agag, and the best of the sheep and cattle. And when the prophet Samuel confronts him with the disobedience to God's word, Saul confesses his sin, but then he quickly justifies it. He says, I feared the people and obeyed their voice. He may have felt real pressure from the leaders of his army to bring home some of the spoils from war, in which case his defense is inexcusable in light of God's endless warnings to not fear people. Or perhaps Saul reasoned that the fear of others was so common that Samuel would accept his excuse because it's the human thing to do. After all, it's, it's such a part of human society. How can we be held accountable for it? You realize the fear of man is so heavily steeped in the heart of man, but it's never excused by God. You see it again in the New Testament, in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, with some of the leaders coming and hearing Jesus' words and being convinced that he was sent here by God, and you would think that they would drop everything and follow him. This is the one that they've been waiting for. This is the one we're praying for. How, how else will they do it? They're beginning to become convinced, but they're to worship, right? But that doesn't happen. They feared confessing their faith openly because of the possible rejections and, and the rejection they would have from those in the synagogue. And here's what John says about this. For the fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. See, see the synagogue was their life. It was their, their job. It was their way of supplying for their family. So they feared being thrown out. In verse 43, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. How would you like that written on your tombstone? Is it right now? They loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. What an indictment. They lacked any fear of God, and thus they lacked any wisdom for their life. The psalmist says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. The only way to practice it, the word, is to know it and to study it. Remember what the psalmist says in verse 2 that we looked at. Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. Friends, I want you, I'm going to give you some homework this week. I want you to read the Bible every day this week. Moms that have little kids, just read one verse, okay? Or read it with your kids. I know how they are. Read the Bible every day this week. 
and then write out one thing that you praise God for from his word and then share it with someone. Everyone, either your spouse or a friend or social media or through a text message, do you want my cell? Just start texting me all week. I'd love to have a thousand text messages of what you are impressed and praising God for from what you read in the scriptures this week. And then pause each day at the end of the day, consider how good God has been to you. Every day before you, before you lay down to sleep, just, just think through the day and how you see God's goodness in your life. How else will you remember what God has done in your life if you, if you don't think through these things? And then I would encourage you to write it down somewhere. Maybe just write it down on a slip of paper and just stick it in your house. Of course, if your spouse likes a clean house, she might not like that. But. And then a little treasures you find throughout the year. Remember what God has done and then share it with others. Maybe you need one of those cubbies in your dining room against the wall continue to put your, your heart and your mind to what God has done and to, to show others who God is. How many things that God has done in this last year, this last month, last week that, that you even remember? Parents, we need to instill this in our kids. We need to make this a regular part of our week. And, and I don't care, frankly, parents, how old your kids are. If your kids are grown out of the house, call them up this week and tell them how great your God is. Send them a text message. Share your thankfulness of what God has done, what you read in his word. But as we close, we're not just supposed to remember the wondrous deeds. This, this psalm isn't merely just about remembering the past. We're also directed to the future. Do you notice one word that's repeated five times throughout the text? His righteousness endures forever, verse 3. He remembers his covenant forever, verse 5. His precepts are established forever, verse 6. He commands his covenant forever, verse 9. His praise endures forever, verse 10. These forevers remind us that there are yet greater works to come. God's not done. So it would be good and well for us to remember and to study his word, but also to look forward. Study in the, in the forevers in Scripture, and you will naturally study God. And that's the, the greatest thing you can determine to study for your life, to study God. I know I quote him quite often, but he's my favorite preacher. And 170 years ago, a young 20-year-old pastor rose to preach, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He lacked any formal training, but he loved the Bible. He bled the Bible. In the introduction to his sermon about God, he's talking about what it means to know God, and I want to end with this. He said, there is something exceedingly improving to the mind in the contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its affinity. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. 
Science, whatever it is, ennobles and enlarges the mind, I dare say it does, but nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as as devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. Oh, there is, in contemplating Christ, a balm for every wound. In musing of the Father, it is quietest for every grief. In an influence of the Holy Ghost, there is healing for every sore. Would you lose your sorrows? Would you drown your cares? Then go, plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. It is to the subject that I invite you this morning. Yes and amen. Go likewise, friends. Read the word of God. Plunge yourself deep within its pages. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you that we can gather together as this congregation here in Edgewood. And we give thanks to you, God, with all that we have. And we recognize that you're great are your works, O Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work. And your righteousness endures forever. You have caused your wondrous works to be remembered. Lord, you are gracious and merciful. You've provided food for those who fear you. You remember your covenant forever. And you've shown your people the power of your works. And in giving them the inheritance of the nations, the works of your hands are faithful and just. And all of your word, your precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and brightness. God, you have redeemed us. And you've commanded us your covenant forever. Holy and awesome is your name, God. And we recognize that the fear of you is the beginning of wisdom. Help us to, to practice what your word says. Help us to worship you, to wonder at you, and to seek to live for you. Your praise endures forever. Thank you that we can study your word together. And may it go with us as we leave this place for your honor and for your glory. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.